It is a great joy to be with you once again. I want to thank you for the last couple of days that I've had the privilege to be here at the Advent with you. You have shown great hospitality, wonderful warmth and kindness, and I am extremely grateful to have had this opportunity. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking this morning at one verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Here we have the Apostle Paul writing to the believers there in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we read the following. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for yet another opportunity to come and to gather with other believers and to sing your praises, to offer prayers to you, and, to, and just to dwell in your presence with others. You are a great and a holy and a beautiful God. We worship you this hour. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to mold us and shape us and change us to be more like Jesus. And we offer this prayer in his name. Amen. What am I supposed to do now? What am I supposed to do now? No, I don't mean now that I'm through with school. I don't mean now that I'm married and have children. Oh, I don't mean now that my career is underway. No, what I mean is, what am I supposed to do now, now that I'm a Christian? Now that I'm a believer, now that I'm saved, now that I'm a Christ follower, what am I supposed to do now? Do I just sit around and exist in a state of salvation? Am I supposed to just sit around basically doing nothing, waiting for God to take me home so that I can receive my heavenly rewards? What am I supposed to do now? I think it's a very important question. I think it's a relevant question to the vast majority of us in this room right now, and here's why. Many of us, perhaps most of us in this room, are going to spend more of our lives as Christ followers than not Christ followers. We're going to spend more of our lives as Christians than as non-Christians. Now, this past year, I turned 50. I know I don't look a day over 49, I'm sure. But I turned 50 this past year. Uh, but what I want you to know is that I became a believer at the age of 8. At the young age of eight, I knew that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I had heard the gospel for as long as I could remember even back then. My dad's been a pastor for 50 years, grew up in the church. I knew that I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and I embraced Jesus Christ as that Savior. So for 42 of my 50 years on this earth, I have been a Christian. What on earth was I supposed to have been doing for these last 42 years? Just pursuing anything I wanted to pursue? Just sit around existing in that state of salvation? Or has God had something for my life these last 42 years? Well, I want you to know the answer to this question is a resounding yes. God has had something for my life as a believer, and he has something for your life as a believer. And I don't know about you, but every day I can't wait to get out of bed. I've got something to do. I've got things to, I've got places to go. I've got activities in which to engage. Every day I'm excited to roll out of bed and to get going. Now what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? Well, we find the answer in our text today. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to engage in conjecture. God gives us the answer right here. Did you notice what Paul said? Look there. Ephesians 2 verse 10. He says it very clearly. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Here it is. To do good works. As a Christian, that's my mandate, to do good works. Now, before anybody accuses me of having bad theology, oh, I get it. 
I'm not saved by bad work, by good works. And in fact, just a verse or two in front of that, Paul says exactly that. He says we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. So while I'm saved by grace through faith and not of works, once I become a believer, I have plenty to do, and that plenty to do is good works. And have you ever noticed something about this? God's just so smart this way. Have you ever noticed that when you're engaging Christian in good works, when you're doing those good works for the glory of God and for the benefit of others, when you're doing that, there's an incredible sense of satisfaction. There's an amazing sense of contentment. You know why that is? Because you're doing what you were created to do. And I know in my own life when I'm not doing that, when my life gets focused on me, on Stan, and what I want to do, and everything is about me, there is a lack of satisfaction and contentment. Why is that? Because I'm not doing what God created me to do. So what am I supposed to do now that I'm a believer? Well, it's, it's very clear I'm supposed to engage in good works. But that kind of begs the question, does it not? What fits, what qualifies for good works? Well, the truth is there could be all number of things. But I do believe, looking at the scripture, they're all going to involve people. I think we can agree with that. These good works are going to include people. And I know that because people matter to God. Because God loves People. Oh, you remember what Jesus said. He has his followers all gathered around him. And remember what he told them? He said, I have come. What? I have come. I have left the glory, the majesty, the splendor of heaven. I've come to this place. Why? He told us to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, what was lost? Was he looking for a lost building? Was there a lost budget? Was there a lost program Jesus was looking for? Oh, no, no. There were lost people because people matter to God. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood for people. Now, as we dive a little further in that, it seems obvious. Just even a cursory glance of Scripture reveals that God has a special affinity for the poor for the outcast, for the downtrodden. He, he seems to, all throughout the Bible, not just in one isolated verse, but all throughout the Bible, there seems to be a special affinity on the part of God for the poor and the outcast and the hurting and the suffering. You simply cannot escape it. I mean, you look in the Old Testament, in Psalm 82.3, it says, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. In Proverbs 14.31, it says, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever kind to the needy honors God. It's throughout the Old Testament. Oh, then you come to the New Testament and the Gospels. What did Jesus have to say about this? Very interesting passage in Luke chapter 14. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And you see, I don't think that Jesus was speaking in an allegorical kind of a way. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. I think what Jesus meant when he said, when you have a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, what he meant was, when you have a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And I find that as Christians, we are sometimes strange creatures because I've been in church all my life. My dad's been a pastor for 50-plus years. My granddad was a deacon. My great-grandfather was a deacon. He's been around those of us who are Christians for decades. I know us. 
And I've been, as a result, in a lot of church banquets. Oh, my stars. Banquets for volunteers. Banquets for this group. Banquets for that group. And they've been wonderful. And dinners like we had yesterday, fantastic. And I've been into all kinds of banquets. But I can't remember the last time I went to a church banquet that was for the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Is it not odd that we have banquets for everyone except for the people that Jesus said to have a banquet for? Do you find that strange? I wonder why that is. Now, does that mean we can't have a banquet or dinner, invite our friends? Oh, I don't think that's what he's saying. But I think what he's saying, if that's all the dinners you ever have, if you never have a banquet where you invite the people that I said to invite, something seems to be amiss. Oh, and it didn't just end with the Old Testament and, the, and Jesus and the Gospels. You continue into the New Testament. And, oh, James, wow, you read James, and he didn't really mince words, did he? In James chapter 1, verse 27, he said, Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Oh, I read that and I stopped. I need to know the answer to this, okay? What is the religion that God accepts as pure and faultless? I need to know that because I'm a religious person. I mean, I'm going to church all the time. I'm here on a Tuesday even. I mean, I'm a religious person. I preach. I go to Sunday school. I, I give them my financial resources. I'm really a religious person. So all this religious activity in which I'm engaged, can you imagine, Christian? What if I'm doing all of this religious activity and God doesn't care anything about it? Now, would that be the craziest thing? What if I'm spending all this time and all this effort and all of this energy and all of these financial resources and God doesn't care one thing about what I'm doing? Wouldn't that be a glorious waste? But I don't have to wonder, what does he say? James 1, 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Well, isn't, that's what he's saying, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Richard Stearns is the president of World Vision. He's written a book, a number of books. One is entitled The Hole in Our Gospel. If you have not read that book, I highly recommend it, The Hole in Our Gospel. And Stearns made an interesting statement in there when he said, it's not what you believe that counts. I thought, no, wait a minute, Richard. What do you mean it's not what I believe that counts? He said, it's not what you believe that counts. It's what you believe enough to do. And then he goes on to say, when we become involved in people's lives, when we work to build relationships, walk with them through their sorrows and their joys, live with generosity toward others, love and care for them unconditionally, stand up for the defenseless and pay particular attention to the poorest and most vulnerable, we are showing God's love to those around it, not just talking about it. But what does it look like to do good works, to reach out to the poor? Well, you know, because you do it all the time. You do it through your church. I talked to many of you yesterday. You're doing it through your businesses, and I loved hearing those stories. You're doing it in many different ways. For us, it all started back in January of 2010. You may recall that's when the earthquake struck the country of Haiti, a country that was already desperately poor. The earth earthquake struck in January of 2010, and immediately one million people became homeless, and between two and 300,000 lost their lives. You may recall a number of months ago, there was an earthquake in Italy, a terrible earthquake, where two to 300 people lost their lives, and that was really bad. But compare that to two to 300,000 humans who instantly 
lost their lives. That was in January. It was in August of that year that a man came to see me in my office when I was pastoring at First Baptist Church of Jackson. I have no idea how he got an appointment because I did not want to see him. I knew what he wanted. He wanted us to, he wanted to get our church involved in his work. And we already had plenty of things going on. I didn't need someone else's project. And so he came in. He was doing some work in the Dominican Republic in Haiti. He sat down on the couch and, uh, in my office and he opened up his laptop. And you see, he had been doing some work in the Dominican Republic and when the earthquake struck Haiti, the border just opened so you could freely go back and forth bringing relief supplies. And that's exactly what he had done. So he sat there. He showed me pictures of people living in awful circumstances. And then you know, I had a lot going on. So I thanked him, you know, pat him on the back, had a little prayer and sent him on. And I thought I was through with him. Except for the fact that the Holy Spirit would not allow me to get out of my mind what he had shown me. He had shown me pictures of people living in tent cities in horrible conditions. And so I remember praying, Lord, I live in a nice home up in Madison, Mississippi, in the suburbs. And these people are living in horrible conditions. Why do they have to live like that? And so I said, I'll go. I got some friends, and we went down there, and we landed on the DR side, spent the night at my friend's compound. We crossed the border the next day into a rural area, and I went to the first tent city I'd ever been to. Now, this was no ordinary tent city, if there is such a thing. Instead, it was a tent city for amputees. Everywhere I looked, there were hands missing and feet and arms and legs. And, and it, 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 was, it was overwhelming. I had seen poverty before and hopelessness, but nothing like this. And so I, I had to get away from my group that I was with just to pray and to think and to process what I was seeing. And so I began walking down this pathway. You see, they just jam these tents in there, and it forms pathways in between. So I'm walking down there, and all of a sudden, a young man is walking towards me. It was obvious he was a Haitian, appeared to be about 19 or 20 years old. And I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to know what his story was because, you know, everybody has a story. And I went up to him, and, and fortunately, he spoke great English. They speak a Haitian Creole, which I do not speak. But he spoke English as well, and his name was Thomas. And I said, Thomas, why are you here in this tent city? I couldn't understand because when I looked at him, his hands were there, his feet were there. Everything seemed to be intact. And he said, well, it's like this. In the earthquake, my home was destroyed, my school was destroyed, my dad was killed, and, and my mom became an amputee. And that's why we're here. I said, okay, well, what's it like living here? You've been here seven months. And he didn't complain. He just answered the question. He said, it's not good here. The food's not good. The water's not good. I said, Thomas, well, then how do you survive? I mean, this is not like camping overnight on the in the forest. You've been here seven months. How do you survive day after day, mentally and emotionally? Now, Thomas didn't know who I was, what I did for a living, but he looked at me and he said, well, there's a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. I said, you don't say. He said, oh yeah. And he said, in this book, it says there's a time for everything. There's a time to laugh and a time to cry. And sometimes we laugh and sometimes we cry. And then I just blurted out to him what, in hindsight, is the dumbest question that any human has ever asked another human in the history of the world. At the time, I had no idea why I asked it. I think I do now. I looked at him, and I said, well, Thomas, if it were possible for you and your mom and, and your family to, to move out of this tent city, to move into a brand-new community, there would be decent housing. You could finish your education where there were jobs and health care and access to clean water and healthy food. Do you think you'd be interested in moving? <laughs> He looked at me. He said, well, of course we would. And then he said, but that's impossible. Now, I don't know about you. You're more spiritual than I am. God has yet to speak to me audibly. I can't wait for that day. It'll be great. But I can tell you this. In that split second, the Spirit of God spoke to my spirit two words, but God. 
And all of a sudden, I'm three feet away from this guy, and my mind begins to race through the scriptures at all the times that God has shown up in impossible situations. Because, you know, that's when he does his best work. I I thought about the Israelites there at the Red Sea. I thought about the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And then all of a sudden, while I'm standing in front of this guy, my mind jumps to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 2, which I believe describes the most impossible situation that we all face. What did Paul say in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2? He said, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're just dead people walking, spiritually dead with no hope, with no future, and nothing we can do about it. And then he says, but God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus. All of that raced through my mind. And then I turned around and I walked away. My group was leaving. I had to go. I wasn't staying. We went to Port-au-Prince, went to a 50,000-person tent city, and then the next day we crossed back to the DR, flew back to Jackson, Mississippi, and that following day, I'll never forget, standing there in my office at the church. I remember praying, God, what am I supposed to do now? You have shown me unimaginable hopelessness and poverty and despair, and I'm one guy in one church in the poorest state in the Union. What on earth am I supposed to do? And God began to give us a vision that we would build a sustainable community from scratch on this island. For those living in the tent cities, this community would have 40 houses and have a, a, a medical clinic and a dental clinic and there would be a church and there would be schools and agricultural plots and water wells. And God gave us this vision. And I thought, well, that's kind of crazy to build this on an island. How are we going to do that? And God began to show us how and he began to provide. And he did some amazing things. And that next May, we started construction on that community. Oh, many of your, many of your uh, 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 fellow members have been there. Your pastor, Andrew, has been there. A- and God has blessed in incredible ways. We have about 900 people who go every year on mission trips there. We've treated over 50,000 pe- uh, patients at our medical clinic. We've built over 100 homes for people living in mud huts and tent cities. And, and there's water wells and agriculture plots. And-, and-, and we employ 80 full-time Haitian employees. And God has blessed in ways we just never thought possible. And you always when we went down there, there was the idea that we would do the spiritual and the physical. And, and what we've come to understand about the spiritual and the physical is they're really just kind of one and the same. You see, for a lot of Christians, I think we're on one extreme or the other. We're way over here. And you know what we're doing? We see someone, and they're not a Christian. And we have a track, and we tell them about Jesus, and we want to get them saved. They say some kind of sinner's prayer, and that's great. Now, they're going to die tomorrow because they hadn't anything to eat. But, hey, I got them to say a prayer. Or we're way over here on the other extreme. You know what we're doing? We're digging wells and we're building houses for people and we're uh, uh, treating people in clinics. But we never bother to tell them about our Jesus. And as we started this ministry, we thought we're Christians and we want to pattern this after the ministry of Christ. And you read through the Gospels, you see the spiritual and the physical were not two different ministries for Jesus. They were just one and the same. I mean, this Jesus of ours, you remember? He was there feeding people literally with bread and fish while talking about the kingdom. He was literally healing the deaf and the blind and the crippled while talking about grace and mercy and God's love. They were all one and the same. And what a great joy to be a part of that. And to see Christians from all over this country to go down there and to see them come alive in their faith. Not try to do something they're not good at. Not trying to do something they don't want to do anyway. But to use their training and their gifts and their skills and their expertise and their, and their experiences for the glory of God and for the benefit of the people that he loves so deeply. People come alive using all their training to make a difference in the lives 
of others doing good, just like he said to do. I, I want to finish with this. I'm going to share three final thoughts related to this. Here's the first one. Here's the first thought I want to leave you with. Over the years, I've made a, a great discovery, and here it is. I'm not a cat. Did you know that? I'm not a C-A-T. I'm not a cat. You know what I mean? They say cats get nine lives. I don't get but one. And you see, what I've come to realize is that I'm not a fearful person. I just don't have a lot of fears. But I have one overarching fear, and here it is. That I get to live to be an old man, and I'm laying on my deathbed, and I have to play the what-if game. I have to say, God, what if I had trusted you more? What if I had exercised a little faith and courage? What if I had been obedient to what you'd called me to do and how you wanted me to live? What could you have done, Father, in my life and in the lives of others if only I'd exercised a little faith and courage, but I didn't. I blew it. I played it safe my whole life. I searched after what only I wanted. I wasn't obedient, and God, I blew it. The only chance I had. You see, I can't stand the thought of that. There, there's a, a second thought, and it, and it has to do with a question. And here's the question. Is anyone's life better or different because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Anyone? I mean, I've been a believer, I told you, for 42 years. Surely there would be one. I mean, what if we had to have a day where we would stand here and people had to line up and, 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 and God is used to stand to make a difference in my life physically? Or would there be anyone to show up? Could there at least be one after 42 years? Because you see, if no one would come, what have I been doing for 42 years claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ when he has invested so much in my life? Am I not in turn investing in the lives of the people he loves so much? Is anybody's life different? Is anybody's life better? Because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And then there's a third thing I would share with you. It has to do with a song. It came out a few years ago. Maybe some of you have heard it. Kind of a contemporary Christian song. And in the song, the, 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 the singer is telling a story. And he starts out by saying, he said, I woke up this morning, I looked all around me, and I saw all this hopelessness, this hurt, this devastation. And, 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 I, and I looked around, and it made me so angry. And so I looked up to heavens, I shook my fist at God, and I said, God, why don't you do something? And God said, well, I did. I created you. You see, Christian, what we learn is God has created us for a purpose. And you see, so many Christians, we're just sitting around watching the news and getting mad at all the bad people who are ruining everything. And the bad people just depends on your political persuasion as to who the bad people are, right? We're just sitting around watching the news, getting mad. I know some of you punching your spouse right now. And all the bad people that are ruining everything. And, but what's interesting, I, I keep looking through. I, have an, I, have, I, have a, I can do Google and, and I have like an index and all. But I can't find the verse that says God created me to watch the news and get mad at all the bad people. You see, we can curse the darkness or we can be salt and light. We can sit around cursing the darkness or we can say every morning, God, you created me to do good works and I'm available. I'm yours. However you want me to use me today, count me in. Count me in to do good works for your glory and for the benefit of others. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you would use sinners like us to make a difference in the lives of people that you have created, in the lives of people you love, in the lives of people who may be hurting and suffering and who just need to know that someone cares, who needs to know, who need to know that you care.
Father, help us to be your hands and feet. Help us to understand from your word that we have indeed been saved by grace through faith, but for the purpose of doing good works to bring glory to your name. We love you, Father. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.